Live from CAP Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy was the headliner at the California Republican Party convention in Sacramento. The three-day event over the weekend also included a Q&A session with local Congress members Doug LaMalfa and Tom McClintock. But all eyes and ears were on that Saturday lunch with the newly elected Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy of Bakersfield. Speaker McCarthy, who has been in the headlines himself a lot recently, took swipes at California Democrats, including Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, Congressman Adam Schiff, who's also running for Senate, and of course, Governor Gavin Newsom. This comes on the heels of some big news here at home, with Governor Newsom's announcement last week that he's backing out of contracts with Walgreens over access to abortion pills. Lots to discuss in the political world that is California. So that's why we called upon our state politics reporter, Nicole Nixon, who is here to break everything down for us and get us up to speed. Welcome, Nicole. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, let's focus on the GOP convention here in California. It happens every year. What is the purpose and who attends? Yeah, political parties hold these conventions once or twice a year. Um, Just a chance to get together. They do official party business, like electing their party officers. Um, This past weekend, the chairwoman, Jessica Milan-Patterson, was reelected for another two-year term. And then they also do just things like volunteer trainings, hearing from their party officials, um, you know, like Kevin McCarthy. This year came with a pretty big change with Kevin McCarthy now as Speaker of the House. Would you say because of that, there was more buzz at this year's event than in previous years? Well, the uh, conventions I've attended in the past were virtual because of the pandemic. So uh, being in person was a big change for me. But I think, yes, there was definitely like a sense of victory, um, real excitement around, you know, having um, Republicans back in control of the House and also having the Speaker be um, no longer a Democrat, Nancy Pelosi, but Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, I think the last time I attended, it was definitely before the pandemic. It was like 2017 or something. So given that Speaker McCarthy was the main guest this weekend, what did he talk about? What were what was his bigger message? Yeah, he gave a pretty wide ranging speech. Um, he tried to hype up the state's Republicans who don't see much, uh, you know, in the way of statewide victories these days. But he highlighted the fact that they've flipped five congressional seats since 2020 away from Democrats, um, talked about his first few months as speaker. Uh, he made a joke actually about the fact that it took him 50 rounds of voting to become speaker. So let's hear that. I'm not sure if any of you watched that vote for speaker. Look, anybody can win on the first vote. But to be able to go 15, I thought you might miss a vote or two. So he's joking about it now. Um, but he also talked about, you know, his first few months, uh, talked about the the debt ceiling and the drama there. He had a, a meeting with President Biden about it. Um, he talked about his platform, which includes what he calls a parent's bill of rights, a proposal that came after the pandemic, um, took some hits, as you mentioned, at Pelosi and Newsom and Adam Schiff um, and talked about removing Adam Schiff and Congressman Eric Swalwell um, and Representative Ilhan Omar from their committees, which uh, actually got a lot of applause from this Republican crowd and then hit on things like China and fentanyl. Um, Pretty like policy heavy, but yeah. I said, Mr. President, there's two things I will never do. I will not raise taxes and I will not pass a clean debt ceiling. But if you want to cut spending, you want to find savings for the American public? I'm all in. 
you know, we're having this conversation, you know, at a time when I know it's 2023, <laughs> but 2024 is a big year and it's really right around the corner. So was there talk or buzz about the presidential primary? I mean, we had Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He was in Southern California mm-hmm. recently. Um, and then also President Trump is making his rounds as well. Yeah. Party officials were not talking about this openly. Um, it's still pretty early, you know, for them. Ron DeSantis has surpassed Trump in the polls among California Republican voters, um, but he hasn't even said whether he's going to run yet. So, you know, I think plenty of Republicans are kind of weighing their options and see who else will jump in. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with Cap Radio politics reporter Nicole Nixon. So let's get to the big news last week. And that was Governor Newsom announcing that the state will no longer, quote, do business with Walgreens. And that's one of the largest pharmacies in the country. And this is all over Walgreens' decision to not supply the abortion pill in 20 states. So how and why did this come about? Yeah, we really have to go back to January for this. So that is when the FDA announced that it was changing a rule to allow pharmacies to get certified to dispense an abortion pill called mifepristone just to make it easier to access. Um, It was pretty soon after that that Republican attorneys general in 20 states sent a letter to large pharmacy chains, including Walgreens, CVS, um, threatening legal action if they move forward with selling the drug in those states. You know, abortion is basically banned in many of those states. Um, And then earlier this month is when Walgreens said that it would only dispense mifepristone, the abortion drug, in jurisdictions where it is legal to get an abortion. And pro-abortion rights folks saw this decision by Walgreens as really bending to anti-choice states. They say it'll put women at risk in those states and take away access to health care. And Governor Newsom saw it as an opportunity to really kind of wield the spending power of the state of California to effectively punish Walgreens for that decision. Um, And I do want to make some side notes about mifepristone. So it is a medication abortion, um, which is actually the most common way that people choose to uh, end a pregnancy. And it works up to 10 weeks gestation. And uh, again, the vast majority of abortions occur in that first trimester. So this is a very common option for people who are seeking abortion care. You know, when I first got the release from the governor's office, what does not doing business with Walgreens actually mean? Are are, are, are the franchise, the chains going to like shut down in the state or something? Well, yeah, it caused some confusion. You know, he was talking about business between the state government and Walgreens. So Walgreens is not closing all of its pharmacies and leaving the state. Uh, it will remain here. And it took a couple days for the, the governor's office to, you know, really pin down what business the state does have with Walgreens. Um, and it's a contract that the state has with Walgreens for specialized medication for um, prison inmates. Uh, this has been on the books since about 2017. It's worth about $54 million over that time. Newsom's office has said it was set to be renewed next month, but that's not happening. He's canceled it. And again, this is an example of the governor trying to use California's spending power to influence an industry. And it's worked. I think, you know, you've seen New York officials also putting some pressure on these retail pharmacies. And then again, this morning, um, the governor's office just sent around a letter um, signed by Newsom and 13 other Democratic governors to uh, CEOs of a bunch of other pharmacies, Rite Aid, CVS, Safeway, um, kind of putting the pressure on them to make a decision about this and continue dispensing this abortion pill in states where it is legal. Hmm. 
How did Walgreens respond? Yeah, I got a statement from their spokesperson, Fraser Engerman. He said they are deeply disappointed by the decision. Um, he cited false and misleading information. Um, and he said that Walgreens plans to dispense this drug in any jurisdiction where it's legal. And that does include California. So, you know, for now, uh, it'll be it'll continue to well, first they have to be certified by the, the FDA and then they'll be able to dispense it. But at the same time, there's this lawsuit over this pill in Texas, a federal lawsuit, um, and a ruling could come pretty much any day on that. So that could have wide ranging implications for access to this drug as well. Yeah, it goes beyond it being solidified into the California Constitution, right? So given that Walgreens may have gotten caught, did, did they get caught between federal abortion issues and California's move to essentially like codify abortion rights in the state constitution? I mean, it, was this act that the governor did, was it too soon? Was it premature? I mean, I think that people were confused because he was announced we're not doing business with Walgreens, but it was like, okay, what business, what does that mean? Like you said, and it took a few days to get that information. Um, so, I think it's just there's this is still very complicated with a lawsuit going on, especially with pretty new FDA rules. And I don't believe any of these pharmacies have been certified yet to dispense this drug, even in states where abortion is legal and accessible. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on and it's pretty complicated. Yeah, it is complicated indeed. So the law for you to follow on that front. But speaking of abortion and reproductive rights, the Legislative Women's Caucus, they began to unveil its package of bills to expand rights here in California. Walk us through some of the bills that are being considered. Yeah, it's a pretty big list of bills. There's over a dozen um, that might get thinned out a little bit as things move through. Um But abortion rights advocates say that there are two big themes this year with abortion legislation in California, and that is protecting patient privacy and increasing support for providers. And we saw a little bit of early movement on this last year. So some of these bills would include things like um, legal safeguards for providers and other, you know, like abortion funds, uh, folks who help patients from other states come to California to get an abortion to make sure they're not getting sued. Um, several proposals to shield patient medical records, things like um, digital privacy, um, adding protections under the California Privacy Rights Act to make sure that those aren't going to be able to be subpoenaed or or anything like that from out-of-state groups. Um, And again, additional supports, um, making it easier to uh, provide abortions. You know, last year they allowed nurse practitioners to uh, perform first trimester abortions. It looks like they might move to allow physicians assistants to do that as well. Um, things like that. A lot for you to follow. <laughs> uh, finally, Nicole, an interesting nugget out of the state capitol is a decision by Governor Newsom to not hold a state of the state address. Isn't it mandated by law? And, and what's going to happen in place of that? Yeah. So instead of a typical, you know, in the legislature or more recently has been doing it in a state um, auditorium, um, big speech about the state of the state. He's deciding to go on a tour around the state and give um, speeches in different areas. So there will be one in Sacramento, one in the Bay Area, one in L.A., and one in San Diego. These are four speeches over four days later this week. Um He is mandated by law to update the legislature on the state of the state, but he will fulfill that obligation, his office says, by sending a letter. Um, At these 
at these tour stops. He'll be giving a speech and making policy announcements. They say um, looks like, you know, homelessness and housing, um, mental health, things like that. Uh, will be big topics. So maybe curating it to each region of the state. We are a big state. You know, finally, is this going to be impacted given that governor contracted, he contracted COVID last week? How's he doing? I haven't heard how he's doing since Friday. It sounded like he was doing okay. And he did not go meet President Joe Biden. But, you know, his office sent an official news release or advisory on the state of the state tour. So it sounds like that is on. Nicole, thank you so much. Thanks. A lot to go through. Nicole Nixon is Cap Radio's state politics reporter. Up next, Gary Gerald has been the radio voice of the Sacramento Kings for nearly 40 years. The G-man himself joins us as he surpasses a historic milestone as a sports broadcaster, calling 3,000 games. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Sunday, February 26, 2023. It may feel like light years ago, but it was just a little over two weeks ago. The Sacramento Kings played the Oklahoma City Thunder, and they won by a score of 124 to 115. In the grand scheme of things, it was a win on the road in the middle of a playoff hunt. But what was truly remarkable that night was that it was the three thousandth broadcast for the voice of the Kings, Gary Gerald. Gary has been calling the Kings game since the very first game in Sacramento back in 1985. The G-man himself has seen it all, the good, the bad, and yes, those ugly, dark seasons. But through thick and thin, he is one of the few broadcasters who stuck with the same team their entire professional career. Gary, or G-Man, joins us with a look back at his career and a look toward what we all hope is the start of a new era of Kings basketball in Sacramento. So, Gary or G-Man, um, I'm just curious, where did you get your nickname G-Man? It's a question that I'm frequently asked, and I really don't have a good answer. <laughs> it started way back, uh, back in the days when I was still working at uh, KCRA television, which means it would have been in the early mid-70s, somewhere along in there. And for whatever reason, it seemed to stick. And um, here we are all of these years later, and I still answer to G-Man. You've had such a wonderful trajectory in sports journalism and, and just sports. You grew up in Michigan. Did you ever think you would be doing what you're doing today and, and at the young age of 82? <laughs> I I certainly, as a youngster, remember that all I wanted to do was be a sports broadcaster. And this was at a time when colleges and universities uh, did not provide broadcasting curriculum. And so 
I was very fortunate that at a very young age, unfortunately, my father passed when I was 12 years old. My mother was frequently ill, and I was an only child, and I was left to fend on my own and frequently would have to I would live with neighbors or our pastor's family in our church. Um, but the bottom line was that a small town radio station in Midland, Michigan became my second home. And I virtually visited that radio station on a daily basis. I would spend every night there. And at a very young age, I was uh, afforded the opportunity to have my own show as a teenager. And it kind of evolved out of that. And the fact that I always wanted to be a sports guy somehow um, came to be. And I, I'm one of the very fortunate few, I gather, that over a lifetime have been able to do exactly what I always wanted to do. We're talking to you right now with this um, huge accomplishment with the Sacramento Kings. Did you ever think about taking your show on the road and, and joining another team? You've stayed with the Kings for so long, since 1985. Well, Sacramento has been been our home uh, since the mid-60s, 1965. And when the Kings came to Sacramento in 1985, I was uh, overjoyed because it was the first major sports franchise to make Sacramento a home. And I've never, I've always enjoyed Sacramento, and I, I've had no desire to, to transplant and go somewhere else. And the fact that the Kings have been here now for 38 years, and I've been blessed with the opportunity to, to be a, a broadcaster with that organization, uh, is just been something that uh, I think dreams are made mm. of. Take us back to that era in 1985. What was it like to be a basketball fan here? Well, if you were a basketball fan prior to the arrival of the Kings, uh, your only opportunity to watch basketball were through high school, some limited college play, UC Davis, Sac State most notably. And then there were a handful of uh, AAU teams and independent tournaments, the March of Dimes tournament, things like that. And so uh, it was really kind of slim pickings. And then suddenly it all gets transformed. And the excitement that when the Kings came in Sacramento in the mid 80s, 1985, uh, I always hearken back to uh, the preceding season, the end of the season in the spring of 85, uh, the Kansas City Kings were making a West Coast appearance to play a couple of games, either in Los Angeles or in, in Oakland against the Golden State Warriors. And they scheduled a stop in Sacramento and had a workout schedule at American River College. And I remember just being blown away walking into that gym. It's not big. Uh, seats probably at that time around, I think, 3,200, something like that. And it was crammed to the rafters with now Kings fans who were so excited to see the Kansas City Kings in person. And I remember the looks uh, were just incredulous on the parts of the faces of uh, Reggie Theus, uh, LaSalle Thompson, Eddie Johnson, Larry Drew, members of that first team, they were getting standing ovation when they walked on the floor and when they were doing their routine stretching and things like that to get ready for a practice session. And they were just totally blown away. They couldn't believe there was that kind of support to greet them in Sacramento. And that's where it all began. And, and I think it was a streak of almost 500 games, 497. The first 497 games that the Kings played in Sacramento were all sold out. And that still stands as one of the longest sellout streaks in NBA history. So it's uh, it's gratifying to see how it's evolved over this long period of time. 
it was just so exciting when they first arrived. And now with the resurgence of the Kings, it's it's really getting exciting once again. Yeah, given that, I mean, what you've experienced, this trajectory with the Sacramento Kings since its inception here in Sacramento, I mean, it's just so special. I, after almost 40 years of calling Kings games, do you still get butterflies over certain games or moments? I don't know if I would call it butterflies. There's always apprehension and you always want your team to have success. And the fact that this organization has now gone for the last 16 years without making the playoffs has become the longest drought in all of professional sports. And everybody is so anxious to see that drought broken. And I've referenced it to being like wandering in the desert for a decade and a half. And finally, an oasis is in sight. And I see palm trees and I see fountains and sparkling water. And I'm ready to dive in. And I think that uh, these last three or four weeks of the regular season are going to be a test for all Kings fans. And there will be anxiety and there will be angst and there will be drama and there will be nights when you excel and there'll be nights when you wish you had the opportunity to do it all over again. But the fact that it's creating excitement, we're getting sellout crowds on a consistent basis once again, it's a fun team to watch. And I'm I'm truly excited about, you know, everybody's kind of being resurrected here after a dry spell. We frequently talk about the passion of Kings fans, and it's been exemplary over the years. But there's nothing like winning. And everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon, wants to be part of the fun. And I get to be part of that fun on a nightly basis. And it's it's something that uh, keeps these old bones going and, and just thoroughly enjoying what I get the opportunity to do. You have quite the unique experience of I'm using uh, your metaphor of being parched for about 16 seasons now. <laughs> you know, given that you are that radio voice that really comforts fans, guides the team, how do you get energized over the last 16 seasons when you've had, you know, your fair share of, of times when the team is down and out? It's been a huge challenge. There's no question. Uh, you want success. And when you don't have success on a regular basis, it has a tendency to beat you down. And I joke about the fact that uh, I used to be 6'4", but now I'm 5'8". And uh, I've been I've been pounded down here over the years uh, with some of the struggles of the Kings. But if you're a professional broadcaster, in my mind, you find a way. And I've, I've always tried to be very fair. Yes, you support and you want your home team to have success. And yes, you can be called a homer in terms of being a broadcaster. But by the same token, if the Kings happen to be stinking the joint up, I'm going to tell you that they're stinking the joint up. And I, I think that that's the only thing that a good broadcaster can do. My job, as I see it, is to try to inform, to try to entertain, to try to create a picture in your mind so that if you want to try to envision what's happening through the radio, you can do that. And it's a huge challenge when your team is struggling for success. I go back even further, you know, just over a decade ago when it looked like the Kings were going to be uprooted and moved to another city. That's right. And the despair that was felt amongst all the fans, people in the organization, as a broadcaster, those were the toughest games that I've ever had to do. And each game, you know, you kind of had to have a little chat with yourself before you went on the air and say, okay, you know, don't let this drag you down. Don't let it impact your broadcast. Try to find a way to, you know, be positive, even though 
it is so gloomy in what the future looks like for this organization. Thank goodness they were able to survive. Vivek Ranadive comes to the rescue, buys the team from the Maloofs. Now we have this magnificent Golden One Center in the heart of downtown Sacramento that I think is really revitalizing the downtown core area, much as we hoped it would. Then you look back over the last couple of years, and with COVID, because we couldn't travel, we were doing games on a remote basis, some of those were almost as difficult as the time leading up to whether or not the Kings were going to be uprooted and moved. Because in the building for home games, you had cutouts, you had no fans. And because we weren't traveling and calling games remotely, there was no energy to feed off of. That was a very difficult time as well. But now we seemingly, in the past, we started traveling again in the last six weeks of last season and all of this year. And so it's uh, it's good to be back. You get to see, you know, broadcasters and friends that you've come to make over the years on the road. You get to visit your favorite hole-in-the-wall dining places and things like that. And all of that combined with some modest success has really rekindled, I think, uh, my passion for Kings basketball. We're having this conversation under drastically different circumstances in the very, very best way after, you know, a drought of 16 seasons. And you marked this history-making 3,000th game. (laughs) That must be so special that it's in a season that is so long overdue. Well, it is very special. Um, I don't consider myself to be a, a big ego person, but I would be lying if I didn't say that, you know, reaching 3,000 Kings games is a very satisfying milestone from my personal standpoint. And the fact that we were able to win the 3,000th game on the road, and the fact that the Kings coaches and the organization saw fit to get me down from my broadcast position immediately, I I got a text. This never happens. I got a text in the fourth quarter saying, as soon as the game is finished, get to the locker room as quickly as you can. And I'm thinking, I wonder what this is about. Something something is up. So I end up making my way quickly to the locker room and some of the staff are outside the locker room in Oklahoma City. And I'm saying, you know, what's going on? And we don't, I don't know. They're either, either they don't know or they're being really good at being coy and playing it off. And then we get in the locker room And after wins, something that the Kings have newly initiated this season is awarding a player the defensive player of the game. It's a beautifully addressed medallion, Kings logo, full of uh, glitz and glitter on a heavy, heavy gold chain. And it's it's quite an honor for the defensive player of the game. So Jordy Fernandez, who is the associate head coach with Mike Brown, uh, he's the one who makes the decision or who, who hands it out. And he's talking about, you know, in defense, communication is important. We've got a communicator here who tonight celebrated his 3,000th broadcast. And G-Man is uh, the man who gets the chain. And the team goes around you and they take pictures and they got a fog machine and they got all kinds of blitz and bling and stuff going on. I have to tell you, it was not only was it an extraordinary experience, it was probably one of the most memorable experiences of my lifetime. It was absolutely mind boggling. You have been 
with the Kings through just, you know, turbulent waves over the decades. And the reality is we've had this conversation multiple times on Insight that, you know, this season there are people in Sacramento who have never really experienced what a city is like during a playoff run. It's been 16 seasons. What do you think it's going to be like if we make it? Well, it's it's going to be crazy. There's no question about it. You, you look back to that run of eight years, eight consecutive years in the playoffs under Rick Adelman, and a couple of the most memorable playoff series, uh, most notably the one with the Lakers in 2002 that went to overtime in the seventh game before it was decided. Um, the atmosphere at the old Arco Arena, uh, it just it's off the charts, and people get swept up in it, and it's such a rallying cause and cry for not only Kings fans, but I think people get swept up in the enthusiasm and it's something that a region shares. And it's uh, it's something that we haven't had, you know, for such a long period of time that there's no question in my mind that, you know, people are going to go bonkers. I mean, they're just going to they're just going to be beside themselves with joy. And everybody knows that, you know, getting to the playoffs is one thing. And as tight as it is right now in the Western Conference, there are no guarantees that the playoff drought is broken just yet. Yes, it's looking very good. We're encouraged. But if they get there, Golden One Center will never have experienced what it will be like on the night that the first playoff game is played in that building. And it will be literally vibrating. I guarantee you. Yeah, it is an underdog story, and it is tight, as you say. You also Mm -hmm. said that you're not afraid to be critical of the Kings' performance on the court. Where would you rank this current team from years past? Well, it's closing in on on ranking behind. And the Kings have only been to the playoffs three different spans. We mentioned the eight years under Adelman. They had one season in the mid-'90s where they played Seattle. And then some people forget that the very first year the Kings were in Sacramento, they did make it to the playoffs thanks to a late season push. They didn't have a winning record that year, but they got in. They were swept in three games by the Houston Rockets. So right now, I think this team is starting to create you know, memories and ties to the early years of success under Rick Adelman, which was, I think it was 1999, maybe the first season or 2000. That, that he was with the Kings and they got into the playoffs. Uh, you get into the playoffs and it becomes a different game. The intensity is ratcheted up so much. And the old cliche about how every possession is so meaningful is absolutely true. And you can't make mistakes. And the window for opportunity is a small one. And then you get your foot in the door. And then you have to learn how to win in this scenario. And depending on your seating, more than likely you're going to be playing somebody who's above you. Although, you know, it's conceivable that the Kings could be a top four seed and have home court advantage in the first round. How wonderful that would be if that turned out to be the case. But but I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, there are no givens. When you start, you have to learn how to win in a playoff atmosphere. And there are only a couple of guys on the Kings roster who've had playoff experience in the past. And so for the, the bulk of the team, They're going to find out it's a whole different world in terms of intensity and meaningful possessions. So it'll be an exciting time. It'll be a learning time. But I love Mike Brown, the head coach of the Kings, his approach. He doesn't just want to make the playoffs and end the drought. He wants to have success in the playoffs. 
And I'm anxious to see if the Kings are up to that challenge. Just listening to you talk about, one, your passion for broadcasting, your passion for basketball, specifically the Kings, I'm just curious, what is life like for you on your days off or during the off season? What do you do? Well, for close to 40 years, I worked network television and I did primarily uh, motorsports uh, in the off season. And so I was basically traveling every weekend of the summer. So now that I've pulled out of the motorsports as of six, seven years ago, uh, slow things down a bit. I spend a lot of time on the golf course. I enjoy that immensely. But the excitement of this kind of revitalization of the Kings and their success of this season makes off days interesting. I always enjoy watching other teams play through NBA League Pass and through the various networks. We get a chance to watch teams on a national basis, on a nightly basis. So if we're not playing, I'm watching a handful of games every night and uh, keeping an eye on what teams are doing. And so it's uh, basketball still takes a very, very big part of my life. And I'm I'm proud and blessed to have the opportunity. Yeah, it's a vigorous schedule. And especially after the pandemic, remembering those like fan cardboard cutouts, you know, in the stands <laughs> and not really being able to travel, you know, after that pause and that hiatus, do you enjoy traveling with the team? Because it can also get grueling, I would imagine. It is grueling. And, and a lot of people think, oh, it's it's so glamorous. And that's not always the case. Uh, you tell me how glamorous it is when you're walking off a bus that you come from the airport and it's eight below zero in Minneapolis and you're arriving at the hotel at two in the morning and you get your bags and unpack and you're turning the lights out at three thirty or something like that. But you become conditioned to it. And that's part of it. And I I do enjoy it. My one concern, Vicki, is that my wife's health is not good, and I, I worry about her when I'm on the road. She maintains that you know she can still fend for herself, and she has done very well over this last season while we have been traveling. But it is it is a concern. But that's part of the aging process, and it's something that, that you know we all just face, and you adapt to as best you can. So it's uh, there are challenges that come with the travel. It can be grueling at times, but when you're having success, and particularly, I mean, the Kings have the best road record in the Western Conference right now, and I love that. I mean, and I've always maintained road wins are the best. <laughs> There's a great atmosphere when you're home and the, the joint's rocking and you win on the home floor, but when you're on the road and you're in an adversarial position and you've got, you know, 18, 20,000 fans rooting against you, and you pull off the victory on the road, there's nothing quite like that feeling. And I, I love it. And I still maintain road wins are the best. Do you have like an all-time must-have favorite meal when you're on the road? I'm pretty much a hole-in-the-wall type of a guy. I mean, I have favorite pizza places. I have hot dog places. I, places where I go and, you know, maybe it's nachos one night. Maybe it's uh, some kind of pasta uh, whatever, uh, you know, lots of them. You, you kind of find your niches over the years in various cities. And uh, occasionally, you know, it's a nice, you know, formal type dinner. But I, I, I'm i kind of satisfied very easily. I can be just as happy with uh, a hot dog. And some nights it's a PB&J when you come off the airplane and a bag of chips in your hotel room. And that's good enough for me. I love it. 
I feel like with how much you've traveled, uh, that you can have a G-Man food blog. So maybe something you can do if you ever choose uh, to, to retire from the Sacramento Kings and broadcasting. You know, finally, a big piece of this, the reason why you've been with the Kings for so long and also love Sacramento. I mean, you talk about the city, especially the fans, given that you have traveled to every NBA city every single season, with the exception, obviously, of the pandemic. You've said it many mm-hmm. times. We have the best fans. Why is that? Well, I don't know that that I have an answer for that. It's just somehow there is a connection. And the hardcore group of Kings fans who've been there through thick and thin have just been so passionate and so supportive when the team hasn't been good enough to deserve, frankly, that kind of support. And somehow the connection has been made And now that they're enjoying success again, some of those people that have been on the fringe, they're jumping in feet first and and they're enjoying the ride. So it's it's marvelous. You know, there are a handful of cities that you go to where there is a very passionate fan base. It can be very raucous. But I still hear countless references to this day from people when I'm on the road, hearkening back to the old Arco in Sacramento. And the fact that it was built kind of on the cheap, it had the wooden plywood floors, people would stomp their feet. We called it Arco Thunder. And that has stuck in the memory of so many people. It was such a tough environment for opposing teams to play in. And I still hear references virtually on a, on a daily basis. We're on the road. Somebody will say, man, I just remember how tough it was to play in the old Arco. Well, hopefully now... We're going to start to be saying that about Golden One Center in Sacramento. It's a great facility, and the fans have been responding, and the sellout crowds have been, you know, multiplying, and and it's just a, a great atmosphere, and it's a great place to watch basketball. And so we're excited about that. Gary, it's been wonderful. Thank you for making the time, and congratulations on such an incredible accomplishment. 3,000 games. <laughs> I guess that just means I'm old, but I've... <laughs> I've enjoyed the ride, and I've said so many times, I am truly blessed, and I I love that I have the opportunity to do what I do. And knock on wood or whatever, hopefully we can keep it rolling for a while longer at least. Knock on wood. Gary Gerald is a radio voice at the Sacramento Kings. G-Man just surpassed a sports broadcasting milestone, calling 3,000 games with the Kings, an accomplishment that began nearly 40 years ago in 1985. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Salmon have been intertwined with California long before water infrastructure bolstered the agricultural landscape we depend and thrive on today. The dams, reservoirs, miles of levees are a lifeline to flood protection and water supply. But water infrastructure, coupled with climate change and drought, also comes at a cost, including near record low salmon populations in recent years. Native and indigenous communities intimately understand this cost through all that was taken and lost. The Winneman Wintu tribe called this state home well before becoming the California we know today, and salmon are an inextricable piece of their culture and history. An audio documentary from KALW, an NPR member station based in the Bay Area, walks in the shoes of the Winneman Wintu people to learn about their clash with Shasta Dam, the fight to protect sacred sites along the McLeod River, and return Chinook to their Northern California homeland. Judy Silber is a reporter for A Prayer for Salmon. That is the latest season of the podcast from The Spiritual Edge. Welcome, Judy. Thank you, Vicki. Well, starting off with a little background with you, you got your start in journalism at the Orange County Bureau, the LA Times. You then moved to the Contra Costa Times. You covered biotechnology, business of healthcare. When did your path lead to public radio and creating a podcast that focuses on religion and spirituality? Right. <laughs> yeah, so it's a little bit of a convoluted path that I've been on. Um, so I started off as a scientist. I, I actually got a PhD in molecular biology before I switched to journalism. Went to journalism school. As you said, I got my first job um, at the LA Times and then came up here to the Bay Area. And then in 2009, I um, I started, I actually, I had le- I actually left journalism because, uh, you know, newspapers were starting to go under and I was like, okay, I'll do something else. And then in 2009, I really felt this longing to go back to journalism and but not to go back to print where I felt like I I had never quite got it in terms of my print voice. And so I was like, you know, I think I'll try radio. I did a lot of listening to NPR when I was in graduate school and I started volunteering at KALW. And at the time, I was sort of going through my own sort of like spiritual revival. (laughs) I was doing a lot of meditation um, and then I I got a little bit more into my own heritage, which is Judaism. And so I started um, to do stories about spirituality, mostly about meditation and then about Judaism. And that was sort of the spark for the spiritual edge, because I realized that, you know, most media stories are less about people than they are about institutions. And I was really sort of interested in changing the focus of that. And I also, you know, a lot of media stories are about conflict or at the most they're about like holidays. (laughs) And I was like, you know, I really would like to do stories that are more focused on people and how religion and what the, the roles that religion and spirituality play in their lives. Yeah. And and now you have your latest season, which is a prayer for salmon and you really follow and really listen to the Winneman Wintu tribe and they open up about a long, painful history of their people's population, cultures, traditions that has just been irreparably impacted by the growing needs for water in the state and its infrastructure, including Shasta Dam. This is a deep dive. It's over the course of 10 episodes broken up into three parts. It focuses on Shasta Dam, its impact on the McLeod River, Chinook salmon through the lens of the Winneman Wintu people. How do you explain this podcast to someone who's unfamiliar with this topic or issue? 
Well, I think you just did a great job. <laughs> um, maybe I should uh, I should ask them to talk to you. But so mostly, I explain it. There's, um, you know, we, it's actually going to be eleven episodes. We're releasing the final episode uh, probably on Friday, and uh, so it's eleven episodes. But it's really three parts. The first part, which is the first four episodes, we focus on uh, efforts that was was over about. 20 years or more um, to, it was a, there was a federal proposal to raise Shasta Dam, uh, that is to raise it higher for by another 18 and a half feet. And this, you know, the, the danger in some ways has passed, or at least at the very least, it's in a lull right now. But we, um, with the change in administrations, during the Trump administration, they were really pushing this project and they, you know, they got it right up to the finish line. But then under the Biden administration, it's mostly been left alone. So it's it's a little quiet now, which makes me feel, you know, like as a news person, it makes me feel a, a little self-conscious, like, oh, this isn't like something that's active right now. But on the other hand, we were following what was happening 2017, 18, 19, 20, when, when the dam proposal was inching its way up to the finish line. And it was very stressful for the Winnemumwintu because this would have huge impacts on them. The dam proposal threatened to flood or destroy sacred sites, um, which are some of their few remaining. So when the original dam went up, it flooded a huge area, including um, something like 25, 26 miles of the McLeod River. And Winnemumwintu villages, sacred sites, their homes were all put underwater. So what they have left now to them is very precious. And so this threat of Shasta Dam being built even higher, which meant the reservoir behind it gets higher, um, you know, that was it was it was a big deal and it was very stressful and it was something they had to fight for for like i said something like 20 years so that's the first part of the documentary the second part of the documentary is more hopeful i would say um and it's more it's like the this quest that they had um or that they have to to both um bring salmon back to their river which is the mcleod river above shasta dam where salmon have not swum in 80 years um and but but beyond that, it's to it's to restore salmon populations throughout the whole Sacramento Valley, because salmon numbers have really gone down. Um, I mean, from historic numbers, there it's about you know one tenth or less of what they used to be, uh, and you know scientists, fisheries biologists, people you know who work with salmon all the time say that even just in the last couple of decades, they've really seen salmon declines on the river and. You know, for the Winnemumwintu, it's not just a food source; it's a it's a cultural resource. It's something that for them is, you know, it's it's like it's part of their blood. It's part of who they are, and and their origin story and their sort of creation story that says, you know, how the world began. They feel they are the speakers for salmon. Salmon in their origin story, salmon gave up their voice so that Winnemumwintu could speak, and so they feel this moral and both like a moral and a spiritual obligation to salmon and they believe that whatever happens to salmon happens to them so this fight for salmon you know it's two-pronged it's for salmon but it's also for them yeah and, and so yeah and yeah. the traditions that ultimately you know were were at risk of just being lost um and and trying to restore that as well your third part of the series um and i want to get to is our is solution oriented they're actually they've they've hit some really important milestones in just the last you know six or seven months right that's right so um 
since about 2012, the federal government uh, has been planning a a pilot program to get salmon back on the McLeod River. And, you know, there's it's it's been a lot of planning and there's been sort of ups and downs even within that planning. During the Trump administration, it almost completely stopped um, because the Trump administration had other ideas about where the water should go and what it should be used for. Um, but in 2021, it really started up again. The planning started up again. And then in 2022, so just a year ago, uh, officials at the National Oceanic and well, sorry, National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, and NOAA, NOAA mm-hmm. yeah, NOAA, um, got very concerned that the winter run species of salmon was going to be wiped out. So we had two very bad years of drought in 2020 and 21. And 22 was looking pretty bad too. And they were like, okay, this could be three years in a row. Salmon have a three-year life cycle. If you wipe out salmon during that third year, that's it. And so, you know, winter run is one of four runs on the Sacramento River. The Sacramento River has one of the most diverse salmon populations in the world. Um, And, you know, and these salmon were at risk. And so the federal government started really pushing the idea of getting winter run back on the McLeod River. Uh, in 2022. And they actually, you know, for the federal government, they moved very quickly. And so they moved quickly to get Winnemumwintu cooperation, um, you know, sort of out of respect for the Winnemumwintu that this is their river. And then they also moved quickly in terms of getting all the planning and the permits and everything that they needed to get the winter run into the into the McLeod River. And in July, it actually happened. So I attended a ceremony uh, in July on the McLeod River uh, where they took um, eggs from a hatchery that's just below Shasta Jam. It's the Livington Stone Hatchery. So uh, winter run are bred at this hatchery. And so they took fertilized eggs. They put them into what are called remote site incubators, which is basically just these barrels. <laughs> um, and so they put them into these barrels that were right next to the river. Those eggs were able to hatch and then swim out into the river. And it was the first time in 80 years that this had happened. So it was a pretty, you know, it was a very hopeful event, a very significant event. But at the same time, you have to remember where that came from. And that was because, you know, this threat of winter run being wiped out. And, you know, that is still a good possibility, yeah. unfortunately. Judy, we only have about 30 seconds left. Uh, What do you hope listeners take away from a prayer for salmon in the the next 20 seconds or so? Yeah, well, I mean, what we're hoping is that people will really start to see the world through the Winnemum Wintu eyes to have to be able to, like, be privileged to that perspective um, and to, you know, help you think about our world, the world of California, the state of California in which we all live, and how might we better, how might we do better by it? Judy, thank you so much for putting together such a wonderful podcast series, A Prayer for Salmon. Thank you. Thank you, Vicki. And we have a link on our Insight page as well. Judy Silber is an executive editor of the podcast, The Spiritual Edge. And that is it for Insight today. You can learn more about all of our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.